Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations in all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Bradley Bianco. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Kieran Mitchell. Kieran is a researcher at the Australian Centre of Ancient DNA, looking into the phylogeny of extinct kangaroos. Dr. Kieran Mitchell, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You're all very welcome. Let's get into it. Tell us a little about yourself, what it is you do, and how you started doing it. So I work at the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide and I sequence ancient DNA, which is DNA that we extract from the remains of animals that lived like a long time ago, basically. So it could be thousands, it could be tens of thousands of years ago. Are we talking about fossils or...? So you could consider them fossils. You could also consider them just to be like old bones, for example. So sometimes the word fossils has kind of a connotation to it that... It's bone, which is no longer bone. It's been kind mineralized. of mineralized. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's transformed from bone into rock at mm-hmm. that stage, effectively. And most of then the biological kind of signals and tissue has been lost. Whereas the kind of material that we would be working with, or I would be working with, is just still sort of chemically a bone. It's just a lot older. It hasn't, really old bone. it hasn't gone through that process of mineralization yet. So, so sometimes we call it a fossil, sometimes we call it like a sub-fossil because it's like less than a fossil I guess, <laughs> but it's also just like a bone. Are we able to get ancient DNA from mineralized bones, fossilized bones, or not at all? There's no biological signal left. No, so there's no evidence at all that we can get DNA from any sort of mineralized bones or mineralized fossils. There's some evidence that you might be able to get some other biological molecules. So maybe like lipids, for example. So lipids, like fats essentially, mm-hmm. tend to preserve quite well over long periods of time. Perhaps proteins Pro- as well. There's been quite a bit of work on proteins a, yeah, recently, right? That's a bit more of a controversial area at the moment. But there's at least some evidence that proteins you can get from quite old, sort of at least semi-mineralized bones as well. Oh, interesting. They're still obviously useful molecules to study, but in terms of the questions that you can ask of them, mm-hmm. they're kind of they're obviously much more limited than DNA. So you've got well, first of all, how long does DNA last for in an old bone? Yeah, so that's a good question. So I was saying thousands to tens of thousands, and that's usually kind of the limit. So it depends a little bit on the condition that the bone's been in. Colder and drier environments are better like a mammoth in the permafrost or something exactly so that's basically best case scenario gold standard yeah yeah is permafrost because that's basically like you've just put it in the freezer (laughs) Uh, it's from the moment the animal dies in some cases it's just like snap frozen uh kept frozen it's dry it's cold and in those situations that's where we've gotten the oldest dna and that's from a horse from the north of Canada. And that came out of the, that was a bone that came out of permafrost, which is just like frozen soil, effectively, permanently frozen soil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that bone was, I, it could be anywhere between 400 and 700,000 years old. Oh, whoa. I was thinking like 50,000. That, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. So it could be up to 700,000 years old. And the researchers working on that were able to sequence the entire genome from this horse. Wow. So that's that's the kind of the How crown jewel at the moment. So that was a few years ago now that they uh, okay. that they did that. Still like semi recently in terms of the the field of ancient DNA. 
but no one's been able to top that just yet. Much more usual kind of range, I guess, for working on ancient DNA is probably like up to about 100,000 years. Yeah. You can sort of much more reliably get DNA without having to have those like exceptional preservation conditions like back to about 100,000 years. So in Australia where we've got a dry climate but it's really arid and warm, I imagine DNA breaks down much quicker. Is there a problem inferring these kinds of genetic signals from deceased Australian animals? Yeah, so that's been that's been a real problem. And that's something that I've been working on for years now, so even since my PhD basically. So I've probably been working on trying to get ancient DNA from Australian species for six or seven or eight years, basically. Uh, And yeah, it is a problem. So I I mentioned that cold and dry is good for DNA preservation, but it's probably the cold that's the more important Mm. of those two. Um, Wet conditions can be okay as long as it's consistently wet. So what really hurts the DNA is like cycles of wet and dry, basically. And similarly with temperature, like cycles of hot and cold can be really bad as well. But heat by itself is also really bad for DNA preservation. Right. So we've, I've tried to sequence DNA from a lot of places around Australia. A lot of those places I haven't been successful at all in getting DNA. So for example, well, and other places I have been successful. So... I've worked on some bones from the Nullarbor because, I mean, you might not notice as you're driving through or going through on a train, but actually that whole Nullarbor plain is sort of cast limestone landscape. And so underneath is just riddled with caves, basically. And there's bones through all these caves from animals that have fallen in over the last, you know, there's bones in there that are hundreds of thousands of years old. Right, cool. So we've tried some bones from out of those caves uh i've tried analyzing bones from there's some dingo bones down there but there's also tasmanian tiger bones down there because up until about three thousand years ago tasmanian tigers and tasmanian devils were spread across the australian mainland not just tasmania so calling them tasmanian tigers and tasmanian devils that's just where they were left yeah it's a bit of a misnomer maybe (laughs) so we've tried we've tried um to sequence DNA from some of these specimens. And that does work uh, up until a point, it seems. So it seems like for the Holocene, so the last like 10,000, 12,000 years or so, it seems like we can get all right DNA from some of this stuff on the Nullarbor, but maybe not going back further in time than that. It's possible that it's just been a little bit too hot there, basically, to preserve the DNA. Uh, I've also tried some bones as well from Narracourt in South Australia. Very famous site, UNESCO, yeah. I believe, right? Yeah, so it's a World Heritage yeah. area beautiful fossils down there going back hundreds of thousands of years again people have done some ancient dna studies on some of that material and that shows that you can get dna back to like maybe twenty thousand years ago so back to around the kind of last glacial maximum Mm -hmm. or the last ice age i guess again that's that's good because there's a whole bunch of species we can kind of study in that time frame but it doesn't get let us get to the really kind of juicy stuff. So like these extinct megafaunal species, because yeah. uh, of course in Australia they become extinct like by about forty thousand years ago. So they're a little bit out of reach uh, for Narracourt, even though Narracourt does have some really beautiful fossils for some of these megafauna. So for a bunch of the giant extinct kangaroos, and especially for Thylacoleo, the marsupial lion, there's a whole bunch of really nicely preserved fossils from Narracourt. But no good for DNA, unfortunately. <laughs> so, so I give you a bone mm-hmm. that's 8,000 years old, let's say. Yep. 
how do you actually go about taking DNA from it? Yep. So the first thing that we would do is take a little chunk of the bone, basically. So maybe, maybe if you give me the bone, I can take that with me back to the lab. But quite often we'll be sampling a bone that's in a museum collection or something mm -hmm. like that. And in that case, I'll go to the museum. I'll cut out a little piece of the bone. So we only need half a gram maybe to do our analyses on. So maybe it's a piece of bone sort of one centimeter by one centimeter. So only a relatively small piece. And we bring that back to our lab here in Adelaide, which is kind of a, an ultra clean lab basically. So we clean everything down with bleach. Uh, we UV irradiate everything that goes into the lab. We UV irradiate the lab each night as well. Uh, and the idea there is just to try and basically kill anything that's yeah. living in the lab. So even bacteria. So we want it just to be as sterile as possible. So we bring our bone back to the lab. We take it into the lab. We UV irradiate it on the way in mm -hmm. uh, to again, try and remove any like bacteria or even just any DNA that's on the outside. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we do that is because in this 8,000 year old bone, there is DNA, but the DNA that's in there is now at a much, much lower concentration and is much, much more sort of damaged and degraded than it would be in a, an eight-day-old bone, mm -hmm. for example. And me, myself, uh, working on the bone, I'm constantly shedding DNA from my right, skin, my hair. Like, if I cough, there's, like, so DNA the, being aerosolized. The risk for contamination is super high. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't take much to for me or mm -hmm. for another researcher to, like, swamp out that remaining signal in the 8,000 year old bone with my own DNA or for bacteria from maybe like soil or something to swamp out that signal as well. So we really want to try and avoid contaminating it and to remove as much contamination as we can. So when I'm working on the bone, I'll be wearing like a face mask. I'll be wearing a full body coverall suit. hazmat suit. Yeah, basically a hazmat suit, effectively. <laughs> Gum boots, three layers of gloves, like a visor. So I'm just like covered basically so that I'm not shedding anything into the environment in the lab and all this protective gear is like not to pr to protect me from anything in the lab it's to protect the lab and to protect the samples from me basically so we'll take that bone into the lab generally then what we'll do is remove the surface layer from the bone just to be absolutely sure that we're getting rid of anything that's basically touched the outside of that bone so People in a museum collection examining the bone mm -hmm. often are touching it with their bare hands and that's gonna leave behind skin cells and stuff on the outside. If the bone hasn't been completely cleaned, then there'll still be some soil on the outside and often soil has a lot of DNA from microorganisms yep. in it, so bacteria and fungus. So we just generally remove the surface of the bone completely at that stage and hopefully that gets rid of a lot of that sort of contamination. The next thing we do is to take that little piece of bone and basically grind it up into a powder. Uh, and that's to just increase the surface area. Because mm -hmm. the next thing that we do is just dissolve the bone. We put, that, we put it into a mixture of chemicals that breaks apart the calcium phosphate. That's the matrix of the bone. Uh, we put some enzymes in there as well, which break down any like collagen or other proteins that are left. So basically we take this piece of bone and we just like break it down into its core components. So then we've got all this like soup floating around and there's some DNA in there. There's little bits of um, like there's amino acids and protein floating around. There's all these like calcium salts and stuff that were uh, making up the bone. And what we really want to do is from that soup, we just want to take the DNA out and work with that. 
So what we can do then is add a couple more chemicals in and some little tiny silica particles. And by changing the pH of the solution, the DNA kind of sucks onto the silica particles, right. whereas none of the other stuff does. And then if we centrifuge it, we end up with all these silica particles at the bottom of the tube, whereas all the protein and stuff still floating around in the solution. We can tip that out, just keep our pellet of silica beads, change the pH again, and the DNA comes back off the silica. And now suddenly we've got just pure DNA floating around in solution. Cool. And so then we can take that and sequence it basically now that we've got that sort of purified DNA. And how much have these methodologies or the technologies associated with ancient DNA studies advanced in the last five years? What is available to a researcher today that just was inconceivable five or ten years ago? Mm -hmm. So over like maybe the last ten years and yeah the last five years even as well, technology's come a long way in terms of DNA sequencing. A lot of our methods for like the DNA extraction, so that dissolving the bone and uh, purifying the DNA, that hasn't changed so much uh, over the last like 20, 30 years. We've kind of figured out how that works best. The real technological advancements are coming in how we sequence the DNA once we've extracted and purified it. So for a long time, for yeah, a couple of decades probably, people were using a type of DNA sequencing called, well, there were machines called Sanger sequences, effectively. And these are the machines that were used to sequence the first human genome. Mm -hmm. And what they do is they can basically sequence one molecule at a time. And so that molecule might be, you know, 700 nucleotides long, 700 base pairs long. And they give you a really nice quality sequence for that molecule. But if you're only sequencing maybe like 700 it's going to take uh, you a long bases, time to, yeah, the genome. <laughs> to get to 3 billion bases, it's going to take you a long time. And the Human Genome Project took a bloody long yeah, time. It took years and years longer than it was supposed to, and it took millions and millions of dollars more than it was supposed to. And I can't remember now what the end figure was. I think it was a billion dollars. Yeah, it was definitely approaching a billion dollars for the complete human genome sequence. These days, technology is advanced we've got these new machines that instead of sequencing one single molecule, they can at one time sequence millions of molecules, which means that instead of like a billion dollars to sequence a human genome, we can now do that for basically a thousand dollars. And this technology actually works really, really well for ancient DNA because we have this problem where in your 8,000 year old bone that you've given me, it does have DNA from, you know, whatever the animal was that the bone came from. But that DNA, even after all our decontamination efforts, maybe only contains like 1% DNA from the, the target organism. So maybe it's a human bone. So maybe there's a 1% human DNA there. Maybe there's 99% bacterial DNA and fungus Inside DNA. the bone? Still inside the bone. Inside the matrix of yeah, the bone. Yeah, Because these things after death will kind of, it will actually, the bone's fairly porous and so the fungus and the bacteria will grow into the bone mm. consuming like the leftover tissue and stuff uh, and then when they die they leave their DNA behind so right. even in kind of the core of the bone often it's got a lot of bacterial contamination in it that's just almost impossible to remove and so what we end up having to do is sequence all that bacterial DNA Whoa. as well <laughs> uh, and then sort of bioinformatically or computationally, we just pull out the human sequences and basically throw away all the bacterial sequences. Is that too complicated to go into? How do, uh, you, how do you pass 
what's bacterial just by the sequence itself. So you can barcode, say, okay, this sequence is a is clearly a fungus. Yeah. Get rid of it. Yeah. So basically it's just a matter of sequence comparison. So yeah. we, we end up with, yeah, millions and millions and millions of sequences. So strings of ACs, Gs and Ts. We can compare them to databases that already mm -hmm. exist of human DNA and bacterial DNA yeah. and fungal DNA. And yeah, we can start to decide, right, this is this 1% is all the human DNA from our bone. Here's this other 99% looks like bacterial DNA. We can just throw that away and right. work with the 1%. Cool. And so the real advantage, I guess, of being able to sequence all these like millions and millions of molecules is that it makes it really easy to get at the 1%. Mm -hmm. Whereas with that previous generation of technology, it was really a laborious process to try and target only that 1%. Whereas these days we tend not to worry as much about targeting it and we just sequence everything yeah. and kind of sort it out afterwards. Yeah. When was the first time that we sequenced DNA from something significantly old? So it's been a few decades now and I don't remember the exact year, but one of the very first ancient DNA projects, like the proof of concept, was from an animal called a quagga, which is an extinct zebra, zebra yeah, basically. Right, yeah. Yeah. And so the bones that we used for that weren't particularly old. They were museum specimens, so maybe only a couple of hundred years, uh, or maybe not even that, maybe only a few decades old, perhaps. But it was really just the proof of concept that mm -hmm. there, there is DNA left in these bones and you can still sequence it that really kind of opened the door to a whole bunch of things. And then there was subsequent studies on, you know, human mummies, human DNA obviously became then the focus after that proof of concept. There's a lot of interest in, uh, you know, our, our own history, but the other researchers did a lot of work on other species. There was a lot of work done early on, on Moa, which is a giant extinct bird from New Zealand. They were really nice because they only became extinct like a few hundred years yeah. ago, basically. And they're nice big bones. New Zealand's relatively cold. Uh, there's a lot of caves there that preserve the bones mm. really nicely. So that was a nice sort of test case as well. But yeah, since then, and, and as technology's improved, we've kind of tried to target more and more difficult questions. Cool. So once you've got the DNA out of the bone, mm -hmm. what is it that you actually do with it? What can you do with ancient DNA? So once we've sequenced the DNA and we've got the sequences loaded into our computer, there's a few different things that we can do. So the type of analysis that I spend a lot of my time doing is building phylogenies. And so a phylogeny is just a fancy word for an evolutionary tree, basically, which hopefully everyone's relatively familiar with. Basically, you can imagine it as like a family tree or a genealogy, except the tips of those branches, instead of being your mum and your dad and your second cousin. They're extinct kangaroos. Yeah, <laughs> they could be extinct species, extinct kangaroos, could be Neanderthals, yeah. it could be whatever. It doesn't even have to be extinct species. You make sure evolutionary trees out of living species as well. But then the nice thing about ancient DNA is that you can then slot into that uh, evolutionary tree, these extinct species as well. Um, there's a few other things you can do with ancient DNA as well. You can look at more of a population level kind of question. Instead of putting a species maybe into the broader evolutionary tree of life, you can look at more of like a genealogy for an extinct species. So for mammoths, for example, you could sequence DNA from 100 mammoths and look at how they were related to each other, mm. look at the amount of genetic diversity that they had, 
And that can tell you things about the genetic health of the population. Uh, it can also tell you about the size of the population as well. Because in general, larger populations have more genetic diversity. So by looking at genetic diversity of a species mm. through time... You can infer population yeah, size. Yeah, yeah. And that's really neat because then you can start to look at like climate and environment records yeah. and see if you can find correlations between certain types of change in environment and changes in population size. Yeah. And that can hopefully help to inform about like how populations respond through time. And ideally, the end goal for a lot of research into that kind of area is to know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So we've got these models for what's going to happen to the climate moving forwards. We don't have as good an idea of exactly what the impacts that's going to have are on natural populations of animals. So it'd be really nice if we could say, well... You know, when it warms by this much, uh, populations increase or decrease by this much and they shift their ranges by this much. Because then we could start to plan ahead and kind of maybe mitigate the impacts on biodiversity of climate change. But yeah. we're kind of not there quite yet. That's a work in progress. Right. That's the end goal. Yeah. Yeah. So phylogenetics, mm -hmm. you've recently published a paper on some extinct kangaroos where you reconstructed their phylogeny. Yep. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yeah, so we've actually, I, I was talking a bit earlier about, you know, trying to get DNA from Australian species yeah. and trying to go to the Nullarbor, going to Narragort, trying to get DNA. We have been successful now in Australia pushing back that, that time limit, I guess, on um, getting ancient DNA. So I've been working for a few years now on bone samples from extinct species from Tasmania. And so like New Zealand the climate down there is a bit colder. There's also caves at sort of higher altitudes as well. Uh, and in some of those caves, you find bones that have actually been kept relatively cool for 40 to 50 to maybe 60,000 years. And we can still get DNA from those bones. We published a paper in, I think, 2016, showing that basically as a proof of concept, we could get tiny, tiny little fragments of DNA from a couple of extinct kangaroo species. And then earlier this year, we published a paper as well where we actually got much, much higher quality DNA from those same kangaroos. So very high quality mitochondrial genome sequences, basically. And that was the first time that's ever been done for any extinct Australian megafaunal species. Cool. So it's been done elsewhere in the world for other things like mammoths, for mole in New Zealand, for Neanderthals, for all sorts of things, saber-toothed tigers. But in all those places, they have the advantage of having bones that are kind of more recent and also have been preserved in much better conditions so like permafrost for example australia's megafauna went extinct longer ago than some of the more recent megafaunal extinctions right yeah that's right so it's probably i guess in the grand scheme of things the first wave of megafaunal extinctions anywhere in the world so in North America, a lot of the megafaunal species like mammoths and like saber-toothed cats, they all became extinct around 13 to 12,000 years ago. A similar kind of time in South America. A few species in Europe go extinct like 20 to 30,000 years ago. New Zealand's obviously very, very Super recent. recent. But Australia's more like 40 to 50,000 years ago. A lot of our species became extinct. coincident with human arrival? Yeah, so it's roughly coincident with human arrival, depending on what you accept as the timeline for human arrival. Yeah, that's heavily disputed. Like, yeah, it's, you know, it could be 50,000, it could be 60,000 years. So it's clear that regardless of what date you 
believe for the arrival of humans in Australia, they definitely did overlap for a while, yeah. uh, like thousands of years at least with those megafaunal species. But yeah, reasonably soon after humans arrive, those megafaunal species became extinct in Australia. So yeah, it's still a very highly debated topic whether, like what the, what the kind of key driver was there. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it really was just humans hunting over a period of thousands of years that drove them extinct, whether humans weren't involved at all and it was just some changes in climate environment because there were things kind of happening in Australia at that period. This was the, the lead up basically to the last glacial maximum. So things were slowly starting to dry out. It was a period of global change Yeah, in yeah. many ways. Yeah, which makes, which makes these causes very hard to disentangle and like perhaps the truth lies somewhere in between where, uh, you know, without the arrival of humans, many of these megafaunal species maybe would have gone through population crashes but maybe they would have recovered mm. as the climate kind of improved again. But perhaps having humans on the landscape was kind of an extra factor that maybe drove yeah. them to extinction. So maybe it was like a synergistic combination. Exactly. Kind that's of things. definitely where I tend to lead. Yeah. You know, that's, that's what we see in our own world right now is a synergy among climate change and anthropogenic, other anthropogenic drivers. Yeah. So yeah. it would seem likely that that happened in the past too. Yeah. So paint, paint me a picture of what these kangaroos actually looked like in life. Yeah, so some of these kangaroos would have been very strange looking. Some of them would have been quite familiar looking to us that were close relatives of the kangaroos that we have around us today. Maybe they were a bit larger than you'd expect, but possibly not too different from a red or a grey kangaroo. But we actually, at around 40,000 years ago, completely lost a whole separate subfamily of kangaroos. And they were the short-faced kangaroos, and they would have looked very different to the kangaroos that we have around us today. Uh, obviously, as the name suggests, they would have had much shorter faces, <laughs> which is kind of hard to imagine unless you see a photo of one of the skulls. But they also had slightly different morphology of their legs as well. Did they hop? Yeah, so there's a big debate about whether some of these species these actually huge, hopped. Because right? Yeah, exactly right. So some of these extinct kangaroos could have been hundreds of kilos. And the biggest living kangaroo, the red kangaroo, the males sometimes will get up to like 80 or 90 kilos, but that's about the limit of it. So you can imagine some of these kangaroos are maybe twice as big as a red kangaroo. And the whole thing about hopping is that it's a really efficient gait. And what it relies on is kind of stretching and storing potential energy in a tendon in the legs and then using that basically to spring into Rubber the next band legs. Yeah, yeah. And that's very efficient for a certain kind of weight band. If you're too light, you don't have enough kind mm. of momentum to stretch the rubber band to spring back. If you're in that sweet spot, you know, the size of a small wallaby to like a red kangaroo, you're getting some really efficient kind of energy recycling, I guess, as you stretch and uh, contract that rubber band. But if you get too heavy, you go to stretch that rubber band and it snaps instead <laughs> and you don't get to save all that energy. And people have done some studies looking at, okay, so if you're a 200 kilogram kangaroo, how thick a tendon <laughs> would you need in order to be able to actually bounce or hop without breaking the tendon? And it's some, it's like an unrealistic thickness. It's got tree trunk tendons. Yeah, yeah. The whole kind of biomechanics of it starts to break down a little bit. So people have suggested that a lot of these really big kangaroos probably had started out uh, evolutionarily hopping, but when they'd become too big, 
they probably had to give that up and adopt more of like a walking gait. So mm. they have gone probably... Now that would have looked really yeah, strange. Yeah, it would have looked really strange to us who are used to <laughs> seeing kangaroos hop everywhere. Yeah, so they would have had different leg morphology in a lot of cases. These short-faced kangaroos, would have their arms would have been different as well. In a lot of cases, they were longer than the arms that we're used to seeing on uh, like red or grey kangaroos today. And people have suggested that, that that's perhaps related to their diet, as is their short face. So unlike a lot of our living kangaroos, which eat a lot of grass, these giant extinct short-faced kangaroos were probably eating more leaves from trees. So they were like browsing more than grazing. And so perhaps they're using their arms in this case to like reach and pull down branches mm. to, to reach leaves, which is not something that you see modern kangaroos doing so much. And from that study, you guys revealed an interesting relationship with the giant short-faced kangaroo to extant taxa. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so that was one of the that was one of the main questions that we were looking at. So we sequenced the DNA from one of these short-faced kangaroos uh, from a bone in Tasmania. And the question that we one of the questions we really wanted to answer was how it, how exactly was it related to living kangaroos? Because we had some ideas about how it might be based on analyses just of the, the shape of the fossils. So people have been debating for you know, hundreds of years actually about these species since they were first discovered in the fossil record. So we wanted to test those hypotheses. And so there's this subfamily of living kangaroos that I've been talking about, and that includes basically all living kangaroos, tree kangaroos, uh, rock wallabies, red kangaroos, grey kangaroos, they all f form part of this subfamily uh, Macropodinae. Then there's this other weird kangaroo, which is called the banded hair, hair wallaby. Yeah. Yeah. God, I'm so used to just looking at the Latin name, uh, Legostrophus fasciatus, that I'm like, oh, what do we call it again? Yeah, banded <laughs> hair wallaby. So it's its own kind of weird little creature that's not particularly closely related to that modern uh, subfamily of kangaroos. And it kind of still hangs on like on a few offshore islands. But what we wanted to know was, is this other giant short-faced kangaroos closely related to the banded hair wallaby? Are they closely related to the Macropodinae? So most of the living kangaroos? Or are they sort of outside of those and more distantly related to well, each other? Why would you assume that they were related to the hair wallabies in the first place? So they do share some uh, interesting morphological characteristics in some of their bones. Mm. But at the same time, they also share some with Macropodinae. And so it's been debated where in the evolutionary tree they fit compared to these other two, I guess, lineages of kangaroos. And so that's what we were really hoping to test with this mitochondrial data. Unfortunately, we get kind of a, not an equivocal result, but our results aren't as conclusive as we might have liked. Hmm. So there's some evidence to suggest that the giant short-faced kangaroos were more closely related to the band hair wallaby than to anything else. But there's some limitations to using just mitochondrial DNA for constructing phylogenies. At the end of the day, you're basically only looking at one gene, and mm -hmm. different genes in your genome don't always agree when it comes to reconstructing the evolutionary tree. So there's a number of reasons why that might be. So what we wanted to do, well, what we're doing at the moment actually, is to try and sequence not just mitochondrial genomes, but full nuclear genomes for these extinct kangaroos and use those data so we can have, you know, 
instead of having this one mitochondrial uh, sequence, we can have sequences from hundreds or thousands mm. of individual genes. And that'll hopefully, hopefully give us like really good confidence in the relationship between these kangaroos. So what are the limitations to sequencing a nuclear genome opposed to a mitochondrial genome? And so why did you choose mitochondrial DNA opposed to other kinds of DNA? Yeah, so mitochondrial DNA is really convenient. It's uh, abundant, right? Yeah, That's my exactly first guess. Right, exactly right. So in any given cell in your body, you've got two copies of your nuclear genome, but you've probably got thousands of copies of your mitochondrial genome because each, each mitochondria, which you've got multiple of, has multiple copies of its genome inside it. So in terms of the actual number of molecules that are available mm. to sort of extract and sequence, it can be orders of magnitude higher for the mitochondrial DNA than for the nuclear DNA. And so obviously, if your target DNA only makes up 1% of the total DNA that you're sequencing, suddenly you're, you're targeting an ever-decreasing quantity of DNA. And so for a long time, it wasn't really feasible to go after nuclear genomes for a lot of these extinct species. So that's why we've targeted mitochondrial genomes in the past. They're also nice because they have a very conserved structure mm, mm -hmm. compared to the nuclear genome. So they are just sort of one single block of DNA that gets passed down generation through generation. The, the order of different parts of the mitochondrial genome doesn't change through yeah. time. Like you can compare our mitochondrial genome to that of a kangaroo and all the pieces of the mitochondrial genome sort of still appear in the exact same order. Right. So it's very easy to compare across very different yep. species without having to worry too much about whether you're comparing apples with apples or apples with oranges. And this is because it's a highly conserved genome. Yeah, yeah because it has obviously a really important function right. in the cell. And so anything that kind of goes too far wrong yeah, with it you can't basically with it too much yeah you can't tinker too much with it before the whole thing stops working mm. and then anything that has mutations that are that bad just doesn't get passed on because usually you know you if you've got a really bad sort of mutation in your mitochondria the uh, fertilized zygote doesn't even really start to differentiate properly yep. in a lot of cases so it's just a non-starter so yeah, so the, the structure, like, you can't make major changes to the mitochondrial genome. You can still tinker a little bit with some of the, the nucleotides, which means that there are still differences that we can observe, but we know very well where we expect mm -hmm. to see those differences. And so that makes things a lot easier from an analytical perspective as well. So, yeah, the, the, the reason why we've targeted mitochondrial genomes a lot in the field is partly because they're much easier and cheaper to, to isolate and to sequence the nuclear genome, and also because they're more analytically tractable as well, I guess. But they, yeah, they have limitations as well. So the nuclear genome, as well as being at a much lower kind of number of copies of molecules, it's also much bigger, obviously, as well. Yeah. So the, our mitochondrial genome is like 16,000 uh, nucleotides long, whereas our nuclear genome is like 3 billion uh, nucleotides long so you have to put in a lot more money and a lot more effort to sequencing to get that whole genome out as well so was it just money and effort that was made you able to sequence the nuclear genome from the extinct kangaroos or was there a, a technological advance that happened in a very short space of time so a lot of it was the sort of incremental increases in the the technology and the dropping price of being able to sequence mm -hmm. ultimately we have spent a fair bit of money now on right. sequencing these things and effort 
But another big advantage was a few years ago, a study was published showing that in terms of preserving DNA, there's a, there's a bone in the skull that actually preserves DNA oh, really right. well. So this is called a petrosal bone. And so it's actually part of the skull around your ear, around the ear bones. And that has a really kind of dense crystalline structure to it. And for some reason, that tends to preserve DNA really, really well. Right. So before then, we'd been analysing like limb bones, mm. for example, cutting out a bit of femur or something like that, or even the, the roots off some teeth. Uh, those were kind of the, the targets for ancient DNA studies. But once this other publication came out demonstrating that petrosal bones were useful, suddenly we went back and, you know, Reanalyzed a whole bunch of stuff, yeah. went and resampled some petrosal bones, and a lot of cases it makes a big difference. That's amazing so, that yeah. one little idea can change a field. Yeah, so that was a big difference between the 2015 or 2016 paper and this one from earlier this year is that for these giant extinct kangaroos, originally we'd sampled tooth roots, and you know, we proved the concept, we knew that there was DNA in these specimens, it just wasn't that good. But then once this other paper came out about the petrosal bones, well, I flew back to Tasmania to the museum and sampled the petrosal bones. I need some skull. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sampled them, brought them back to the lab, and yeah, lo and behold, the DNA preservation was much, much better. So for this giant short-faced kangaroo, instead of being maybe 1% of the DNA belonging to the target, now it's like 30%, which is, yeah, wow. that's quite good. And that's obviously, yeah, orders of magnitude better than we were previously able to get. And so brings the price down by orders of magnitude into like a realistic, feasible kind of realm. And so we originally targeted the mitochondrial genome for that, that first study. Well, not the first study, but that study earlier this year. But since then, uh, we've expanded to sequencing the full nuclear genome, which I think we now actually have. Mm. So now I'm moving on to the sort of analysis stage of this, um, this project. Cool. So we're talking about phylogenetics and reconstructing extinct or just lineages generally. What role do fossils play when you're using molecular evidence to reconstruct a phylogeny? Mm. So morphological information is extremely important because it tells you about all sorts of things so it tells you about the ecology of the animal because you can actually observe like its adaptations like you know a bird fossil has wings or a pterosaur mm -hmm. fossil has wings you, you can't read fly. wings in a dna sequence no no uh, we i don't even know if that would be theoretically possible we're certainly not there you couldn't you couldn't hand me a bundle of dna information <laughs> this say, is a wing <laughs> yeah could, could this animal fly or could it not you, you can't necessarily infer anything like that from DNA without knowing something about the animal to begin with from fossil information. Um, so you can obviously find out all sorts of important information about you know, what did the animal actually do. You can look at its teeth and figure out like, what did it probably eat, which is another hard thing to do from DNA. So fossil information has all these really critical elements to it. It does have limitations, though, when it comes to... If you want to reconstruct a phylogeny, so an evolutionary tree using fossils, suddenly all that uh, information about the anatomy and the ecology of the animal becomes a problem. Yeah, it gets in the way. Yeah, because you have convergent evolution in a lot of cases. So something that has evolved to eat meat, or two animals that have evolved to eat meat, maybe they've evolved to eat meat independently, 
they're probably going to end up with similar looking teeth yeah. because there's, there's you know there's only a few optimal designs for like biting and chewing yeah. meat. Sonar was independently evolved by dolphins and bats and yeah. separated by tens of millions of years of evolution. Yeah, exactly. That's a good example as well. And so if you concentrate on looking at those characters, you're going to infer that, you know, bats and dolphins are actually are quite, quite closely related <laughs> to each other because they both have sonar. But obviously there's a whole bunch of other characters there that tell you that that's not true. Mm. In other respects, they're very, very different. In a lot of cases, it's hard to know which set of characters you should believe. So, you know, in the case of the bats and uh, dolphins, like, do we put a lot of emphasis on sonar as being an evolutionary important character or do we use other bones as well like so this is character yeah, selection yeah and that becomes a problem because then subjectivity comes into things mm -hmm. it's you have to make some sort of judgment on what characters you think are convergent and which aren't which in some cases is very obvious but in other cases it's much more controversial and so people have tried to get around that subjectivity using fossil data by you just you trying to characterize lots of bones and lots of aspects of bones and just hoping that the convergence signal is just a like a subset of that and that the true phylogenetic or evolutionary signal overwhelms it and gives you the right tree but then the problem is as well as convergent evolution of individual characters like you know teeth or sonar or anything like that you also get a whole bunch of correlated traits as well. Like if you're a carnivore, you're going to have changes that occur to your teeth mm. to help you bite and chew meat. But you're probably also going to have a whole bunch of other things like claws. Yeah, you've got to chase and subdue your prey as yeah. well. So you end up having a lot of traits that go together with each other. And so if you have really strong convergent evolution for like carnivory, uh, often that might change everything about the shape of your body. It's not just going to be the teeth. So then like this convergent signal can become like the majority of the signal in your data set. And so we actually did a study on a system like that relatively recently where we looked at the Tasmanian tiger and we looked at wolves and foxes as well. Because if you compare those animals morphologically, they're actually extremely similar. Right, like, you would come away saying, yeah, these are very closely related. Yeah, if I handed you a Tasmanian tiger skull and a wolf skull and asked you which one was which, I would bet that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I'm a botanist, so I definitely <laughs> wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> if you surveyed people on the street, I reckon you would get a kind of a 50-50 uh, split on it. They're very hard to tell apart unless you, you... There's a few, like telltale giveaways but they're very much not obvious so these things have been separated by like 100 or 150 million years of independent evolution and they probably their common ancestor was probably a little squirrel like thing that lived in a tree because you know tasmanian tigers are marsupial wolves are placental mammals like us so they've come a long way around to ending up very very similar looking and that's just because they both do a similar thing so they're preying on other animals effectively yeah. and they're chasing them they're yeah so they end up with very similar skulls they end up with very similar like proportions of their body and proportion of their limbs just because of the ecological niche yeah there are them. there are only so many ways to kill an animal <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so that's a very interesting system because it's one of the most extreme like 
examples of convergent evolution that we have for mammals, basically. And that's been very well characterized for a long time. In a lot of respects, if you tried to create a phylogeny based on those morphological characters, you'd get the wrong answer. Mm. You'd get Tasmanian tigers and wolves being close relatives, whereas we know that we're more closely related to wolves than thylacines or Tasmanian tigers are. And there's other characters that tell you that, like, you know, these reproductive traits. Yeah, like obviously, marsupials yeah. are much, much different to uh, uh, placental mammals like us. Uh, and the, the DNA data, when you analyse that, that's exactly what it tells you, is mm. that we're closer relatives to wolves uh, than Tasmanian tigers are. But what we wanted to do is, in this particular study, look at the genomes and try and see if we could see convergence there. Because obviously, this... Um, this convergent morphological evolution has to have some... It's underpinned genetically. Yeah, it has to have some basis in um, the... We would, I would yeah, assume, anyway. Yeah, well, uh, we, we have to assume. <laughs> and in fact, we didn't find any good evidence uh, explaining that. So we were looking at, you know, are there similar changes in certain genes that have occurred in Tasmanian tigers and wolves which might um, have led to them being similarly shaped mm. and doing similar things? And so we tried to look at the, the protein sequences that the DNA was coding for, and we didn't really see any signals of either the same changes occurring or even just changes occurring in the same genes in both, wow. uh, both lineages. So we looked reasonably hard, and we couldn't find anything that was kind of underlying that interesting pattern. So in the end, what we kind of concluded is, like, there's still it has to be there somewhere, really. Um, hmm. But it's probably more to do with gene expression than, yeah, the, right. than the proteins themselves. So it's probably more that certain genes are expressed in both lineages at certain points in their development. So rather than having you know, drastically different proteins, it's more like when are those proteins produced and at what levels in, at different times. Well, that's really interesting. Which is a much harder thing to get yeah. into. You can do that kind of thing in more like uh, developmental studies where, you know, you can you can go and look at different times in development at different parts of the body and you can sequence and see which genes are being expressed and which aren't. That's that's pretty easy to do for a wolf where you have, you know... Baby wolves. You have li- baby wolves, <laughs> you have live wolves that you can study. It's much harder to do for an extinct species. And so we still kind of don't know the answer to that question. Well... What an amazing place to end it. <laughs> this is just another one of these podcasts that makes me realize that there's so much more to learn. And what an exciting field to be in, ancient DNAs. Yeah. Really groundbreaking. There's always more to do as well. Cool. If there's somewhere that um, people can find your research or your social media or anything like that, where can they find that? Yeah, so if you look up the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA on Twitter, I think the, the tag is at ACAD underscore Adelaide. Uh, or our Facebook page as well. You can find a lot of we are, a lot of updates get posted as new papers come out or as people present talks. So that's probably the best place to tap into to sort of see this research as it's coming out. Cool, Kieran. Thank you for coming on the podcast, mate. Cheers. My pleasure. <laughs>
please consider joining the Biology Society as a member at www.biologysocietysa.com. If you're enjoying this content, why don't you check out our back catalogue? We release a new episode every fortnight.